This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 930, A Conversation with Lynn Johnston. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 930. Somehow, uh, we're only 70 episodes away from episode 1000 now, which is kind of crazy, which should be, if I can plan my schedule correct, should be coming out on August the 12th, 2022. Today, we have a conversation with Lynn Johnston. She is the creator of the For Better or For Worse uh, cartoon strip, which ran for... Uh, just under 30 years, uh, at least in the original printing. Uh, it has continued to be seen in hundreds of newspapers worldwide. Uh, I was very lucky to be able to sit down with Lynn. Uh, partially, I've got to give thanks to Curtis Finley, who is the uh, her editor on the current uh, uh, collection recollections of the For Better or For Worse strip, which is going through, you know chronologically from the beginning. These beautiful hardcover volumes. Volume 6 is coming out early next year. Uh, there's already five volumes that are already gracing my shelves and hopefully are gracing yours as well. Uh, tremendous work that she did throughout all those years. Uh, her character's age, it's uh, what definitely set her strip apart from many others is that the characters grew and evolved. Um, they didn't stay the same age forever, uh, you know, like unlike, you know, Peanuts, for example, uh, where the characters always kind of stayed relatively finite in terms of their age and never really changed too much, whereas in For Better or For Worse, people did change. People grew up. People had families. People had children. Uh, so things were definitely very different in that type of strip. So uh, I got to speak with Lynn uh, this past week, we sat down and had a, a quite a lengthy conversation. It was really enjoyable. I really got to get into her process, what it was like, you know, working on these trips. Um, there's, you know, it's interesting. I obviously talk to people who works in, work in comic books, and I have a very, you know, good knowledge of kind of how comic book work, how comic books work, how the industry works, how the different companies work. One thing I don't know as much about is comic strips and how that stri- how that whole, you know, faction worked, especially when she was getting started uh, working with syndicates, etc. And when she talks about her first contract that she got it just kind of blew my mind because it just seems like so crazy that you get such a long-term contract uh by you know selling a strip so it's kind of interesting so uh, i had a great time talking with lynn i think you're going to get a lot out of this interview um you know just a lot of insight into her process and you know what she was thinking and what she, what she thinks about the current you know new collections etc so uh strap in this is a really fun one i had a great time talking with lynn uh and again a special thanks to uh curtis finley for helping us uh get together and and uh, coordinating uh, us, at least communicating with each other so that we could have an interview. Uh, I'm definitely uh, very appreciative to Curtis uh, for his assistance in that regard. Anyways, if you want to email me, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Lynn Johnson. Enjoy. Lynn, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so I got to, I guess, give a shout out to Curtis Finley, who helped set this up. So obviously he's the editor on the current uh, collection, collected editions of your strip, um, which are currently rolling out like clockwork. We have a new volume coming out, uh, I guess, uh, what is it, February? That's it's the newest volumes coming out? Yeah, coming out soon. Did you find me through Curtis thing? 
that was, did. yeah. So Curtis was the one who helped put it, put it together. And he was, uh, cause I've, I've actually been uh, friends with Curtis for a few years. We've, uh, he has another podcast, another venture that I've collaborated with him before. Um, he was, and I remember he was telling me about working on, you know, the collected editions of for better or for worse. And that's part of why I was like, you know what? I remember enjoying it as a kid. I should pick this up. And, uh, actually I started, uh, I don't know why it took me so long to get started in picking these up. Uh, I have to c- uh, confess that to you. Um, so I started with volume four and I brought it home and I was flipping through it. My son, came, who's now eight, uh, so this would have been a year or so ago, and he kind of came in and said, like, what you reading? So I started reading through the strips with him and he loved it and I was really enjoying it. And so I was like, well, we've got to buy them all. Um, so we picked up all the volumes, except for there was one unfortunate missing volume that we just could not get our hands on. And thankfully, Curtis was able to step in and be the hero and it's able to find... three, I bet. Number yes, three? That's the, that's the one, yeah. Yes. IDW is strange about not printing more. I, it just makes no sense at all. We've had a number of people contact us, and we have maybe four or five copies of it ourselves, but when those are gone, we, we won't have number three either, except for ourselves. It does seem like a very strange thing. Like, I can understand, obviously, tapering off, you know, generally speaking, you stock a lot of volume ones, and then maybe you have less as they go on. Although I think your strip is a little bit unique for that because of how the story progresses. But, uh, yeah, it's very weird. I remember talking about that with Curtis. Like, what is this about that third volume that is just so hard to get? Yeah. Oh, well, that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. Well, again, thanks to Curtis, I have now all five volumes so far, and I'm looking forward to the future ones. And as I've said, I've really enjoyed not just, uh, you know, enjoying it on my own, but also seeing how my son responds to the work as well, um, because he's just falling in love with the strip. He, I was asking him today, like, who his favorite characters were, and, he, you know, he was, he was trying to think about it, and he's like, I think it's April. I'm like, okay, you know, a later edition, but okay. Well, she was a great character to work with because she didn't exist in real life. Mm-hmm. I was able to take real liberties with that one character because I only had two children. So the third in the comic strip was uh, wonderfully fictional. So anything that uh, would otherwise have been connected to my own kids were now uh, on April's lap, and she uh, she she didn't mind one bit. <laughs> So obviously I do want to go back to the beginning, but I have to talk about the collected editions first and that how was it for you to see your work collected so comprehensively? Because obviously there had been previous collections of your work before, but nothing this comprehensive and kind of encompassing the entire work, the entire body of work. How did you feel kind of at the beginning of the project seeing it all being recollected like this? Well, we were surprised. I'm talking about my daughter and I. She and I worked together and um, like I have a a company called Lynn Johnson Productions Incorporated, which is aside from For Better or For Worse because we're doing other designs. And so she and I work together and we sort of, you know, I mean, it's wonderful to have the strip rerunning in the newspaper and we, uh, you know, we're thrilled with that. And we've sort of imagined that perhaps For Better or For Worse had kind of disappeared into the past. But when Curtis approached us with the possibility of doing this series through IDW Books, we were absolutely thrilled. And the, the, the product itself is absolutely beautiful. We're so happy with the book. It's it's a lovely product. It's such a good quality thing. And Curtis um, wanted to do uh, something that would show everything the way it was when it, exactly the way it was when it first appeared so that um, no changes or corrections or color differences would be seen. It would all be seen exactly the way it was when it came out. And that kind of 
uh, made me stand back a bit because, you know, I wanted to change a lot of things when it reran. You mm-hmm. know, colors I didn't like or sometimes punchlines I wanted to change. And I was able to do that in the strip as it reran. But uh, in the books, he wanted to really be a Puritan and, and uh, <laughs> keep it exactly the way it was. And I'm quite happy that he did that now because it's quite an interesting progression from when I first began to when I, you know, I, I got towards the end because you, you can't help but get better at something, you mm-hmm. know, over time. Oh, for sure. One thing I've, I've always enjoyed throughout, peppered throughout the volumes is your remembrances that are kind of in the margin notes or kind of the, the, the quick stories that you kind of pepper through the volumes. Um, I mean, how, what was like kind of coming up with those and those kind of the shorter anecdotes that kind of would pepper the volume to give it a little bit more life and also not life, that's the wrong word, but more context or to just point out things that you really enjoyed? We weren't going to use those little quotes. Uh, at the beginning, um, I had um, started writing those for uh, our website. We have, of course, the strip appears every day on our website as well as uh, in in the papers where it runs. And I just wanted to add something because there are some real dedicated readers who come to the site every day, and I wanted them to see something more. So if there was um, if there was something about that particular strip that I could tell them how I came up with the idea or did it relate to something that happened to me as a child or did it really happen to our family. And some of the stories are, are really long and some of them are really quite funny and some of them are very personal and some of them are sad. And I thought, well, they, you know, if the readers are interested, maybe I'll run it. And when these little comments started to happen, on the uh, on the website under the comic strip, some people were very upset about it. They didn't like it at all. They wanted really? the strip to just run, and they didn't want to read anything extra. And other people were really quite pleased with, with the idea that they'd see something more about the actual production of the art. And so, um, you know, I only write about the strips that I actually have something to say about about it. And there were, you know, there'll be months go by sometimes where there's no comments. And then other folks were saying, what, where are the comments? We, we want to know more. <laughs> so you can't please them all. You can't please them all. But it has been fun for me to... Uh, to be able to remember myself where these uh, situations came from and to, to write them down. How do you feel about, I mean, it's such an interesting way of uh, of experiencing your work because obviously initially, you know, it would have been in the dailies and then you had the Sunday strip and so that's how it was built, but now people are experiencing it all at once and they're so they're experiencing what used to be, you know, over a lot more time, experiencing all these events all at once. How do you think that both enriches and also maybe changes how people interact with your work compared to when they initially would have experienced it in newspapers? Well, I'm watching Seinfeld all over again, right from the beginning. I just love Seinfeld. And it's a different experience when you can just watch one episode after another. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of things I missed, lots of things I find annoying. I mean, just, (laughs) you know, and it's a different experience. It's like reading a novel when before you could just read a chapter chapter at a time. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems with reading the strip all at once day after day in a book is that the stories that spun out for weeks in the newspaper are suddenly seconds long as you're reading them in a book. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a number of stories that 
were full of intrigue, and, and you'd have to wait and find out to tomorrow to find out what happened. <laughs> For example, uh, John and, uh, and Ellie's brother go out on a canoe trip, and the canoe capsizes, and they're stranded in the woods uh, on a little island, and they have to be airlifted out. And uh, that was, you know, kind of a fun little story to tell. Well, it's like just a few days long in, in a book. Mm. Uh, it's a few days long in the, in the comic strip as it comes out in the newspaper, but it, you know, it's just a few panels in a book, and so therefore it, it has no real excitement to it at all. It's resolved within a page. <laughs> it's an interesting perspective, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, it, it changes everything about the pacing. I mean, I uh, Curtis is big in the comic books as a, as, a, as am I, and we uh, read a lot of collected editions of you know older material, and we see this all the time that it really changes how you interface with it because now, as you said, like you can, it's you know, it's it's one after the other. You don't have that that required kind of release of, oh, well, now you got to wait for the next one. Uh, because there is something about that, as you said, that kind of sense of anticipation, building it up in your mind, and yeah. then, you're, then you have the next chapter. It is different when you can go right on to it right away. Exactly. No, I think it's just, just like being able to see uh, a sitcom uh, all at once. It, it really is a different experience. When you, when you started this trip, one thing I find so fascinating is obviously how you pace differently the, the 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 dailies, and then you also have the weekend strip. And the weekend strip is obviously the you know in color, and it feels more a little bit more broad. And so was that a very conscious decision from the beginning to know that like this is the one that's going to have the more eyeballs. It's going to be the more not necessarily evergreen per se, but you know it's going to it's going to play maybe to more, and it's going to be a little bit more vibrant and usually more about the kids, etc. Was that a very conscious decision right from the beginning? Yes, it was. When when I started to write actual storylines where Monday started a statement and Tuesday depended on your having read Monday kind of thing, you know, you have to be very careful that somebody who missed Monday is still going to pick up the storyline on Tuesday. And it has to be very carefully crafted. But because some newspapers did not take the Sunday page, and some papers uh, just took the Sunday page and not the daily. So you knew that there were readers who were going to miss a huge amount if they if you continued a story on the Sunday page, because the Sunday page gives you all those panels and there's loads of room for information. Mm-hmm. So if I was telling a serious story, boy, that Sunday page would be great. And I remember as a kid reading, oh, you know, Rex Morgan and uh, mm-hmm. Gasoline Alley and some of these other continuity strips that, um, you know, if, if that Sunday page was missing, boy, you'd miss most of the story because of all the space that you have to tell a story. So I, I never did continue the stories into the Sunday page, and I found that that was really helpful because if a story is serious, that Sunday page gives you a wonderful opportunity for goofiness that mm. breaks the, you know, breaks the uh, tension and uh, you can get back to the story on Monday. For sure. In fact, like that's how I kind of got my son into it because I was like, well, maybe he won't go for the black and white because you know kids these days they have no appreciation for black and white for some reason. So I'm like, I'll start with the color and I'll see if he enjoys it. And he really got taken in again. We like the you know the color strips. And then we was like, well, can we go back and read the ones we we skipped? I'm like, absolutely. Um, but I just was trying to like again kind of engage him first in the characters and again some of the whimsy of of the, those ones, and then go into you know sometimes the more serious strips. It was interesting the other day. I was we were talking. I was telling him I was going to talk to you, so I was asking him about you know what questions would you want to ask. And so he had, you know, he, he had typical questions about like, you know, oh, what what made you, uh, you know, what made you bring in April 
as a character. And I'm like, well, that's a very interesting question for a child to ask because, again, it's his favorite character. And he was also, you know, he was asking about, um, you know, why, why did the dog have to pass away? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like that's a, a big thing that happened. But he was very like, again, he's eight years old, but he's like, you know, it was too bad. But at least, you know, I understand that, you know, uh, the, the dog saved April and everything was good. I'm like, that's very, you know, heavy stuff, but he handled it really well. Well, a comic strip in the newspaper is supposed to appeal to a nine-year-old boy. That was what they told me when I got into the business, that they want brand new young readers to come on board and buy the newspaper and read the newspaper. And so the comic strips were were designated as uh, an opportunity for young people to become newspaper readers, right? Yeah. But of course, the comic strips appeal to everybody, mostly adults, and uh, and so um, to have a, a younger person enjoy my work is a real compliment because I, I obviously got a, a an eight year nine year old boy to to read my work and enjoy it. And I, I guess when they said boy, it meant all kids. You know, at, at the time, I remember. Uh, that was what stuck in my mind. I have to appeal to a nine-year-old boy. So, uh, yeah, I I think uh, kids are reading it and they're asking great questions. I have uh, grandchildren who are reading it and asking great great questions. And um, the answer to the question of why did I bring April into the story was because I really missed babies. Mm. I uh, the babies and little puppies and things like that give you the most laughs because they're. They're uninhibited, and they're genuine, and they're off the cuff. They're so much fun, and they say and do things that are, for a cartoonist, just hilarious. Mm. And this gave me an opportunity to have wonderful fun with uh, imagery and storylines that I was losing because my characters were growing up, and um, their vocabulary was changing, and their relationships were becoming mature, and it was uh, it was fun to, to write about them, but it wasn't goofy it wasn't hilarious like it is with babies <laughs> so that that brings up again one of the things that has always kind of set your work apart and been so special about it is the fact that people did age in real time how early did you like did you know right from the beginning like i want this to grow and evolve because i mean for you know for a strip that wasn't the most common of practices like most things were kind of evergreen um i i, I believe you were friends with uh mr schultz right so obviously his yep. characters never aged and there was a magic and beauty to that but also obviously you give yourself a lot of stories as well because you do have your characters aging but how early did you know that no i want this to age in real time it was about three years in about it takes about three years before you really feel confident before you get your sea legs before you get a routine and part of that is trusting that your ideas will always be there because there are days when no ideas come and you panic because you've signed this contract and you have to produce and it has to be on time and it has to be good right so you're not just going to fire out something just to fill the space although that happens from time to time mm. and so the pressure on you to to write well and to and to you know do a good job is is always there and i found that um if i got bored with my material my readers would get bored with the material too so i was you know pretty hard on myself and at first i thought i would just keep everybody the same because i thought that's what a comic strip was Mm -hmm. but it was based on my family, and my family was growing, and my kids were no longer babies, and their vocabulary was changing, and they were they were becoming more interesting as they connected with the kids at school, and they were able to do more stuff, and um, 
I, I couldn't keep the characters in the strip the same age because it, I would have lost all that great material. Mm. So I, I gave the characters a three-year break. I kept the characters in the comic strip the same age for three years. And my own kids grew up three years, and that gave them a nice buffer so that if something, you know, you know, when you're in grade one, a kid in grade two seems like an adult, right? Mm. Or a kid in grade four <laughs> is, you know, could babysit. So, uh, so that three-year buffer really was wonderful for my own two real kids, you know, to, to feel a break from the strip. And, uh, and then I allowed uh, a pretty well annual growth with the characters. And that was a super challenge because after a while you have to change their height, change their hair, change their, their body shape, you know. Mm. It, it was a challenge. And it was a challenge I didn't exactly enjoy, but I loved a challenge, period. So when I was happy with the way the character was growing, um, I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, feeling that I was doing what I intended to do, like uh, tell a real story from a real family's point of view mm-hmm. uh, and from a woman's point of view. And I was often criticized for not changing Ellie Patterson, like the other characters changed. John didn't change much, but the children, of course, did. Mm-hmm. And people complained that she looked frumpy and her hair was ugly and I should change her hair. But, you know, there's a certain look to the adult characters that... Um, it, it, it's a signature look that is very difficult to change. It's fine in a sitcom with live action. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a major character could come in with a haircut or a pair of glasses or something that changes them and it's still them. But in a cartoon, your style of drawing is like your your signature. And so, um, you, you know, it's very difficult to change hairstyles. I remember Sparky, uh, Charles Schultz once saying to me that if it wasn't for hair and clothing, all of his characters would look the same. And if you look <laughs> at all of his characters, he's he's pretty well right, you, you know. And mm. uh, and that's that was his signature. That was the way he drew. So a question about so you talk about uh, again evolving the characters over time. Did you have like this is going to sound like a silly question, I guess, but did you almost have to have like updated model sheets to kind of kind of reference back to like? Yes, this I is- did. Okay. Yes, I did. In fact, one of the most helpful things was an old old medical text that a friend of mine who is a doctor had given me just for the heck of it. He was cleaning out his uh, his library. And I took a bunch of books that he had because they were all on babies, development of babies and all that type of thing. And one of them showed uh, the relative height of a child next to an adult as the child grew. Mm. And um, kids are much taller than you think that they are. Like a four-year-old is much taller than you would imagine in your mind. Mm. And my 10-year-old granddaughter is, you know well up to my shoulder now and if I didn't uh, actually have a 10 year old to measure next to me I would probably draw her much shorter than she really is Mm. that's very cool so yeah so you you would have to update those sheets and uh, again to keep the models on on like obviously like you're you're doing it every day but I guess as you said you kind of have to have a reference point especially if you are evolving them did you find well I kept my I kept the characters three years younger in the strip, so I had that three-year difference. Mm. So the comic strip characters were smaller than my real kids, Mm. yeah, because they were three years younger. Did you, when you were evolving them, did you have a a, obviously, as you said, it was kind of like an annual thing. Was there always a specific time of year that you would usually kind of age them up, or was it kind of a, you know, did it kind of, uh, you know, was it 
not a set thing or did you kind of move it around? Like, how would you approach that? It was kind of a gut feeling. I would say to myself, gee, April has just turned five. She, she's got to look like this now and she's got to, this should be her vocabulary and this should be her body shape and, you know, the, the type of clothes she likes. And, you know, I'd have to think an awful lot about her as a real human being. I mean, all of my characters I thought about as being people with their own personality and their own likes and dislikes and their own quirks and, you know, stuff you didn't like about them and all that. <laughs> they were kind of real real people for me, but real people in my imagination. They were sort of based on my family, but, they were, I mean, it's a story, so it has to be all you. It has to be your imagination, all of it. Mm -hmm, for sure. Now, I want to go back a second. When you talk about, again, like kind of getting the strips kind of sold to begin with, like obviously it was a very different time of, of syndicates, et cetera, very different than obviously now. What was that process like at the time to get this, you know, the strip picked up and to start actually seeing it in newspapers, and, uh, et cetera? Well, it's one of those things that um, is difficult to get into. You can send submissions into the syndicates, um, and if you have an agent, they still send your submissions into the syndicates. Uh, uh, I had done a series of little books on raising, having babies and raising children. I was working as a medical artist for McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, and um, I was doing a lot of comic art for the university because students learn more from cartoons, apparently, than they do from <laughs> graphics showing, you know, graphs and charts and numbers. They, you know, it was more fun if it was colorful and full of funny Im images. So eventually I went from drawing serious surgical illustrations to doing a lot of comic art. One of the doctors was an obstetrician. I did a whole bunch of drawings about cartoons about childbirth for him, and that little book came that became a little book, and I did two other books. Uh, one was called Hi Mom, Hi Dad, and Do They Ever Grow Up? And I was going to do these little single-panel cartoon books as a an aside to my full-time job, which was working as a medical artist. And the three little books were picked up by a publisher in Minneapolis. They were first published in Canada. They were picked up by this publisher in Minneapolis who sent the books to the syndicate, Universal Press, oh, wow. with a letter saying, if you don't syndicate her, I will. <laughs> and they sent me a 20-year contract. Wow. And I was ready to have another baby. I was, uh, you know, walking around with a big round tummy. And when they, they asked me for 20 comic strips, like, right away, they wanted to know if I could work under pressure. Well... There I was doing comic strips on the packing boxes since we're planning to move from Ontario to northern Manitoba. My husband was a flying dentist. We bought a little airplane and we're heading off to the almost the Arctic. And uh, so I sent 20 cartoons right away thinking I'd never hear from them again. And they sent me a 20-year contract. Wow. Now, to put that in the context, like, I mean, 20 years obviously sounds like a lot. Was this a relatively normal practice at the time in terms of the length or like, I mean, I guess they, they want to build up. Yes. This was a normal contract at the time. Like pretty well all of the cartoonists who signed a contract in the early 70s 
or even up until about uh, in in the nineties, I guess it was a twenty year contract, and that was it. And they owned all the rights to your work. And if you died, they could hire somebody else to do it. Or if they didn't like you, they could hire somebody else to do it. And it was it was really uh, very much in favor of the syndicate. Mm. And in their in their defense, they have to work hard to sell you to the newspapers because there's a finite amount of space on a comics page. Sure. You know, if the if the editor of a newspaper has 25 comics in order to take them 26 he has to get rid of one you know and how do you get rid of one and one of the problems too is that editors are very upset when people write in and complain and if they say i really like that strip don't you know you're you put for better for worse in there and i i've never heard of it and i don't like it and you know i'm angry and so it's a hard at first for editors and salespeople to sell your work to the papers because it's a shuffle you, you know, somebody has to bump you and you bump somebody else and there you go. Because it's a, you know, there's not much space in the paper. So, um, yeah, but after a while, if your work is really good, the newspapers hear about you and they want you. They want to get rid of a strip that might be tired and they want to replace it. And eventually they will ask and eventually you don't need a salesman. You've got your work sells itself. And at that point, a bunch of us thought, gee, it might be a good idea if we were able to renegotiate our contract. And so through some crazy rigmarole, we were able to do that. We were now able to change the contract to seven years uh, automatic. Oh, and it was 20 years automatically renewed. Oh, really? The strip was doing well. That was another thing. You say, yeah, at the end of 20 years, I still can't make any changes. And, you know, changes should have been made. Because when you sign a contract especially into something new, there's lots of stuff in that contract that you later on realize that you might well have changed if you had the opportunity and the foresight to do so. Mm-hmm. Well, and so how does how did the ownership of your work work out then? Like, how did that, obviously, like, you, you still control the work now, right? Yes. Um, in fact, all of us own the rights to our work. We own the copyright, you know, the imagery, everything today is ours. There are a lot of strips, the old ones. And you and Curtis are comics buffs. Uh, I mean, your, your education in the comic world way surpasses mine. So you're probably well aware of some of the old original strips. I think Nancy, for example, Nancy and Sluggle, I think that is owned by the syndicate, and they've been able to hire different artists over the years to draw those characters, and I think Bernie Bushmiller did not own the right to his own characters. So, at the time, I believe that's the case. You can check it out for me and <laughs> find out if that's true, but um, after we uh, after we were able to get together, and I mean, Kathy Guys White and Jim Unger and I and uh, some other folks, we got together, and we we you know, we pitched an idea and it, it, it actually worked and uh, we were able to get this new contract system together and all of the cartoonists now are fortunate that it's only a seven-year contract automatically renewed. <laughs> when it came to, again, again the idea of kind of getting your rights back, given that this was such a personal work and that it was so much based on, you know, kind of things that happened to you and the kind of things that happened in your life that were then kind of funneled into the stories in different ways, did it make it that much more important to make sure that you could end up controlling your own work? Absolutely. Yeah. I really wanted, I wanted to know that if I ended a strip, it, it ended and uh, it wasn't going to be picked up and, and done by another artist. Yeah. 
I would imagine that would be really, I mean, I can't even imagine that, right? Because it's, it's such a, as you said, it's such a personal work. It's so, it's so you. And then again, the, the characters have all aged and you've, these characters live in your mind. So the idea that someone else would take that over, especially because it's got so much continuity and so much built into it, it's a lifetime, right? Like it, it, the idea that someone else would have control yeah. of that or be doing stories in that does feel very wrong. Well, I think for some, in some instances, it, 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 the people who are publishing your work, they don't care about you as much as they care about the money that comes in, and um, and that's the, that's the way it goes. It's a business. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really fortunate to be working with, a, I think, a very progressive syndicate that realized that if the artists aren't happy, the art is not going to be good, and we better all of us just, you know, look at this again. So... Um, uh, yeah, I think I, I was very fortunate. I got into the business at a time when comic strips were still a big deal. They were still selling, you know, they were the flagship that sold the paper, and uh, there were a lot of wonderful, wonderful artists involved. I got to meet all my heroes in the industry, right? And uh, now, of course, everything's changed. So much is online, and a lot of newspapers have uh, amalgamated with other newspapers or gone out of business. It, the whole thing has changed. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky to get, you know, become uh, a, comic, a syndicated artist when syndication was still a really wonderful job. Mm-hmm. How did you find that you balanced the the kind of the, the craft of putting together your strip with again the business side like that it was you know and and again the deadlines especially like you know obviously you're you're trying to tell stories and, and that are going to you know touch people in different ways and and say different things and tell these stories but at the same time it's a relentless deadline. It is, and I'm glad you said that because so many people think well you just do a drawing a day and you're done right what's to you know you could spend the rest of the day you know out picking lilies in the field. I mean, but uh, they don't like you to turn in anything that's not, like, finished. They want a week at a time. You don't, they, I think uh, Gary Trudeau's the only one that was uh, permitted to send in a couple at a time because his was so political and so close to the, you know, to what was going on uh, in, in politics at the time. So sometimes he was able to send just a few in at a time, but the rest of us, and, and rightfully so, were required to send in no less than one week at a time, and it had to be six weeks ahead of the publication date for the dailies and eight weeks ahead for the Sundays. And that was because the Sundays were pretty well all colored in Buffalo, mm. and uh and and there was and a lot of it was we had to send hard copy. We didn't send, uh, you know, gifts and tips and whatever <laughs> you, you send on the internet now. These high resolution files, and then you keep all your original art. Now at the time we had to send hard copy, and one time I lost a week, and that was devastating. I had to scramble like crazy to to catch up. But um, I, I li- after I retired, I found out that I was one of the very few artists who actually was six weeks ahead of the dailies and eight weeks ahead of the Sundays always. And that deadline was relentless. It really was because, you, you know, if you want to go on a holiday for two weeks, you have to be eight weeks ahead on your Sundays plus two weeks. Mm-hmm. Six weeks ahead on your dailies plus two weeks so that you can take that two weeks off. And so I was working on trains and planes and hotel rooms and on beaches in my, you know, if we were on a holiday sometimes, I might be in the room writing or drawing. And one time I went to visit a friend in Florida and I was there for about three, four weeks and I had to take my drafting table with me. It was a portable drafting table and I worked, you know, 
you, you, it just never goes away, and um, it, it, that's part of the stress of it. And again, I think I said after three years, you trust the muse. You know that mm. you're going to be able to write again. But there will be a full day when you're supposed to be writing when nothing will come. And if you don't sit there and, and think, um, if you go off and buy groceries and visit a friend instead of taking that day to, to think, it, it doesn't come the next day. You've got to spend a full day just focusing at like being a fly on the wall or being the characters or and you run over all the dialogue in your head and you try to figure out which character have I not focused on and and what subject matter can you know can I explore and all of this stuff it's like wakeful dreaming and that that was my process anyways and I wrote as if I was writing a script for a play but it's very small and very short <laughs> and uh, a lot of a lot of my process actually was suggested to me by Kathy Guyswhite, who does this, who did a strip called Kathy. Kathy's a wonderful writer, and uh, her dad was in advertising, and she did a lot of writing for her dad before she got the job. And um, meeting other people in the industry is so helpful because um, they're they're wonderful when it comes to support and. Uh, and uh, advice. So before I even signed my contract, I called Kathy and said, "Help! How do we? How do you do this?" And she said, "Well, to begin with, do not call it the Johnstons. Do not call the main <laughs> character Lynn, because <laughs> she called her character Kathy." And she said, "I've I've always wondered if that was a good idea." Well, that's funny. So a question about, again, that, that sense of process. So did you find, especially like raising a family uh, and then having the stress of, uh, you know, a relentless deadline schedule, how did you find the creative process? Did you find that you did try to keep kind of traditional kind of daytime hours in terms of when you would be creative? Did you find that you would do it more nights? Like when, when was that muse kind of hitting you? Well, I couldn't work nine to five. So um, I would work from... From I, my little girl would go to a babysitter from nine to noon, so I could work from nine to noon, and then uh, she would come home for the afternoon, and my son would come home from school. So I would, you know, be a regular mom during those hours, and then after dinner, after about the kids were in bed, I would work after dinner, and I would often get up at four in the morning. That was a great time to work. No phones, you know, nobody bothers you. It's quiet. I would work at four in the morning. And, uh, of course, I was a lot younger and I had a lot more stamina then, you know, <laughs> and could work longer hours. But it was, you know, any kind of, you get a chance to work, boy, you grab that chance. And it, it does interfere with your life because part of the time you're living in a fantasy world. So uh, if I was drawing, for example, and uh, one of my kids was in my studio, they'd come over and talk to me and I would, uh-huh, uh-huh, but I wasn't listening to anything they were saying because I was so focused on what I was doing. And I remember one time, it was just before dinner, and my son said, can I have a piece of cake? And I said, no. And he's standing right there eating the cake right beside me, like going chew, 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 munch, 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 holding the cake under my nose. Can I have a piece of cake? No, it's too close to dinner. And he's eating the cake, and I didn't even notice, right? It was So there were times when that was awful for the kids because I was there, but mentally I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And there were times when I did a lot of traveling for, you know, uh, book tours and speaking engagements and going down to Kansas City to the syndicate, things like that. So I had an airplane ticket on my desk all the time. And I remember one time dressing up to go out and, you know, with my suitcase and my airplane ticket and my son standing between me and the doorway with his hands on his hips saying, so 
Are you turning into Lynn Johnston again? You know, so there were times when it got in the way, you know, and, and I was pretty arrogant for a little while. My strip was doing well. People wanted my opinion. I was getting interviews, you know, and I thought I thought it was pretty hot spit. And so my family nicely pulled me down to earth, you know. <laughs> you turning into Lynn Johnston again. Yeah. So uh, when you when you did when you were being creative like that like did you find were you more excited about the actual kind of drawing like penciling and inking and doing all that work or were you more excited about the kind of story generation and kind of just thinking about what the next plot was going to be like which which part if you could delineate between the two was the part that made you most excited to get started every day This is a great question and it can only come from somebody who writes and draws right you must write and draw. You must do uh, this process. Aside from the fact that you do podcasts and that you're, <laughs> you know, you're interested in media, I mean, these are the kinds of questions we ask each other. Well, you know, how, when do you work? What is your routine? How do you get your ideas and that type of thing? And it's not a, it's not a, 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 a it's it's not a simple question. And it's and it's a good question. And the the thing that I guess I enjoyed most about the writing part was the fantasy that led me through all of the body language and facial expressions that I was going to need for the actual drawing. Mm. And so if my writing was good, I couldn't wait to get to the drawing. And the pencil work was a joy because it's almost like, I called it ghosting because the characters and everything about the artwork was done in this pastel gray with your pencil. And so it was easy to change and it was almost like a... a it was like a, a ghost. You could see through the images. But then when you ink it, you touch the characters and they come alive. You put that pen in the ink and you touch the paper and you push the pen onto the paper. And there you're touching the character's cheek and you're running the, the ink over their, you know, their shoulder. And you're combing their hair with the tip of your pen and you're bringing them to life. And to me, that was just wonderful fun. That was a great, a great opportunity to just um be grateful for the skill that you have when when you're doing the strip i mean obviously as you said you've kind of done the books before you started the strip but i mean even the process of doing the, the pencils and inks and kind of bringing it to life like that's obviously that's not just an amateur that's you know you're you've, you're applying your craft because those are two very different skills and to be able to do both of them competently is extremely good and then you're also adding in the idea of when you're doing the weekend strips you're doing colors as well did you find the colors was a, a, more of a harder challenge to kind of adapt to or change because obviously it's different than the starkness of the black and white with the, the whites and the inks. In the beginning, we had very few colors to work with. And what you would do, and this is years ago, before we had a lot of this electronic stuff, um, You, I, uh, what my process was to, to copy each Sunday page on a, on a photocopier. And that copy would be colored with pencil crayons. And the each color had a number, like skin was six and hair was 40 and sweater was 62 and all of that. We had about 62 colors. And, um, and then you would send that chart uh, with the original art to the syndicate and they would send I don't know what I think put it on microfilm at the time and they somehow got the black line to the uh, to Buffalo along with the color chart and they would use that color chart and when I first started they were still using 
Amberlith and Rubyleth, which your reader, listeners are going to have to look up online. Amberlith and Rubyleth are two of the really original ways of putting color into print. Mm. Uh, you know, and you had to use exacto knives to cut cut away this stuff. It was a real difficult process, and there'd be rows of people, mostly women, cutting this transparent paper in order to put the color into the comics. When I had been there for about two years, they uh, developed this computerized coloring system, and I went down to Buffalo to find out what it was like, and it was a room that was very small, but it was actually a huge room, but it was all computers. You stepped up onto the floor, and the room buzzed and hummed with <laughs> the smell of electricity and lights. It, it was like walking into a into a, a computer, and there would be a couple of people sitting there with these screens, and putting the color into the into the artwork and it was like magic because the color would sort of bleed into the line and make it shade a little bit here and there and the whole room hummed and it was literally you walked into a computer i want that later so um and that was the first of the coloring system and now of course you can do it on your iphone for goodness sake <laughs> so that was that was groundbreaking so that first little palette of colors that we had they were able to put colors in between those colors so it went from 60 to you know it doubled it and then it went again and again and again until finally the colors were were endless it was just endless and now um and it didn't take long for me to discover that i could hire a colorist myself and i could stand beside him and i could say could you change this to green and could you shade a little there and and uh and so the coloring became uh, something that you had a lot of control over whereas at the beginning you were lucky if you got anything like what you wanted because you were you know doing pencil crayons or or felt pen on a on a you know, whatever you did to send it to, to Buffalo to get them to do it. Mm -hmm. And they were great. They, you know, they, they, they tried to figure out what the heck we were indicating <laughs> and they did the best they could. So about colors, I'm, I'm always, I'm, I'm thinking about like when you, when you were, you know, developing and choosing which colors to use, and then obviously you're seeing it in newsprints, and obviously that's going to look different than on your drafting table, like what your original conception for that color was. Now seeing it in these collected editions, where again you're seeing it on crisp, you know, white pages as opposed to original newsprint, how different an experience is that for you? Not just the the color strips, but also the black and whites to see what they actually look like in a nice, you know, white, really white crisp paper as opposed to the newsprint that they were on all this time. Well, to begin with, they were a pretty good size. But as the time went by and the editors shrank the strips or, say, stretched them to, be, to fit more, more work in there, your, your artwork looked different in almost every paper. So to see it pristine the way it is in these uh, books by IDW, it's, it's beautiful. Everything is clear and crisp. And as you said, it's, uh, it's the way the artist would like it to appear. What, what, one skill that I'm, I'm curious about in terms of you know your ability to kind of adapt over time was just um, lettering. Um, how did you find lettering work? The lettering. Um, the lettering I really enjoyed. I was always happy with lettering. And, um, and after I practiced it for a while, uh, I could do it quite, quite easily. And I found that the rapidograph pens were the best. And mm. I don't think people use rapidographs so much. They're using a lot of these felt tips now. 
but um, I eventually uh, was able to hire another artist to help me with the artwork. And this was, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe 12 years in. And uh, because I was hiring somebody else to work with me, I was able to put more detail into the art, and they did all of the lettering. But I also have a font. Nowadays, you can have a font of your own lettering, which is great fun. Absolutely. So I'm curious about like the the icon the iconic kind of title of just a for better or for worse the the font that you use. How did how did it, how long did it take to kind of develop that distinctive look? Because obviously that's going to be everywhere. That's going to be on every strip. That's going to be identified with your strip forever. So how was that stressful for you to kind of come up with not just the name of the strip, which is in and of itself enough of a stressor, but also the look of the of the title. Well, I think anybody who eventually finds themselves doing comics for a living has drawn and written in a comic style since they were five years old. (laughs) So I was doing lettering uh, since I was very, very young. And my dad was a wonderful letterer. And my mother was a calligrapher, actually. And she did a lot of uh, hand lettering for different companies and, uh, you know, things like graduation certificates and things like that. And she also (laughs) did beautiful hand lettering for stamp albums, you know, stamp collector's albums, things like that. And my dad was a, a, a good cartoonist and a good visual artist and and loved to do lettering they were both very proud of their handwriting and their lettering so i came by it quite quite uh, by the dna but you know (laughs) again by the time you're 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 actually working as a graphic artist your lettering should be pretty good for sure and even even your uh your signature kind of um of your just of your name was that always how you wrote, wrote your name or is that specifically a st- something that you adapted for the strip i i adapted it later i i signed my full name for a while and i wrote wrote it like in script like a signature for a while but it just it was too much space and i decided that i would just use my first name because i'd been married a couple of times and my last name it, it changed so it had gone from Ridgeway to Franks to Johnston, and I thought, well, the one name that hasn't changed is Lynn, so I put just Lynn on the bottom, and because it didn't take much space, and it was uh, easy to poke in there. So you spoke before about the idea that you know there's this kind of uh, community of of cartoonists. So, and you mentioned Sparky specifically. So I'm curious, what what was yeah. what was your relationship with Sparky, Sparky like, and how did it kind of begin? Well. Um, Kathy Geisleit introduced me to him in Washington the year that I won the Rubin Awards, which was uh, 1985, I think. And he had he he was 63 and he was about to turn 64. And we were walking behind him and his wife Jeannie, and we were singing, "Will you still need me? Will you still see me?" Right? And he turned around and said, "I don't want to be 64. <laughs> I, I don't want to be any older than I am." Right? And uh, right away we we had a real good connection and uh and I, you know he invited me to visit him at his home and once you go visit somebody in in their home that makes a huge difference to your relationship you know once you feel that you can put your feet up on the sofa and and have make yourself a cup of tea then you know you're you're really you know you're comfortable with each other and uh i got to know sparky really well and there were a couple of times when i wrote speeches for him when he'd be invited to do a speaking engagement somewhere and and i wrote a couple of speeches for him and uh and i got to know a lot of his friends and his family and it was it was a great relationship i i missed him terribly when he died 
I'm curious about again with that. I mean, obviously he was this huge icon by then. Like you know, it wasn't he'd been doing peanuts for so long. So when when you meet him, how how quick how quickly did it go from oh my goodness, you know, it's it's you know Charles Schultz to now he's Sparky. He was very welcoming, and most most cartoonists he asked them to call him Sparky. He was he was very friendly and very kind. Uh, he was less friendly and less kind to people who were his serious rivals. You know? <laughs> if somebody was, if, if if your work was seriously rivaling him, I know that uh, uh, Snoopy and Garfield did not get along that great because Garfield was pretty darn powerful, right? <laughs> and at one point, um, at one point, I was in two thousand papers, and I said to him, "Well, Sparky, I'm catching up to you." And he looked at me, and he was mean. He said. I'll see you in the Louvre, right? <laughs> I mean, he was very competitive, and and although you know he he had this kind of apologetic exterior and kind of meek and mild and humble guy, oh no, he was he was very proud of what he'd done, and he was very uh, competitive. Now, similar to to Charles Schultz, you also had your have had your work adapted into various different uh, media formats. What what was that like for you to see that happen and? Because obviously that's you know a reflection of how much people are engaging with your own work and really enjoy it that they're willing to adapt it into other mediums. What was that a fun experience? Was that I mean obviously it's been happened multiple times. Um, what has that been like on the whole? Um, I was really lucky that the first show we did was a nice show, and um, I I I met a. a, a Canadian author in a coffee shop one day and he was you know he'd written a number of plays and, and Gordon Pinsent was his name oh, yeah. and I walked right up to him and I said Mr. Pinsent how do you write a play because I wanted to write a television show for an animation because I'd always wanted to be an animator that was where I was headed at the beginning anyways he was reading his paper he was having his breakfast and he looked up at me and he said just to do it right? <laughs> <laughs> what else is he going to say so I went home and I wrote a play. I wrote a story, and I submitted it to uh, a fellow that was uh, that had a small animation studio in Ottawa. And um, that evening, I got a phone call, and it was uh, a Bill Stevens, and he said, "I've just read your story, and I'm going to do it." And he signed me up, and we did this first little television show, and it was called "The Bestest Present." It was a Christmas story, and. Um, they didn't change any of my script, and I worked with them through the whole process, and it was an absolute joy, and that doesn't happen very often. You know, I, I had since done a number of other uh, animated shows, and the process was gut-wrenchingly awful. And, oh, really? and I have, you know, I mean, you can get angry with your kids, but I have never been as angry as <laughs> when we were doing these. I literally bit a telephone book in half one day. You know those, you know those people you see can split the back of a telephone book and just rip it in half? Yeah, I, I bit one in half. I was so angry. So, uh, but the first show was an absolute joy. And I remember being in the animation building, walking down a hot hallway, seeing all of the artwork stuck to the wall as the storyboard is often all stuck up on a wall. Mm -hmm. They were running the soundtrack back and forth in one of the rooms. They were checking the music 
and a whole group of young, wonderful animators were all drawing my characters. And I stood in the hallway and I shut my eyes and I said, if you don't say to yourself, this is the best day of your life, you're going to miss it. You know, it will go by. Mm -hmm. So anytime somebody says to me anything about, you know, what was it like with the animation? I remember that day because it was an absolute joy. So many people were working on my stuff Mm -hmm. and and I love the process. I love I love the artists, the musicians, the 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 the, the voice people, the fully people. Everybody was great to work with. The management often sucks in these things, you know, <laughs> and the money disappears. And that was that was a problem with the uh, the, the shows that followed. It was always a struggle, you know, because they'll promise you one thing and then their budget disappears. They go to the Cannes Film Festival with their family and friends, I guess. I don't know where the money goes, but <laughs> it certainly didn't go into the shows. And the shows suffered terribly. Because you know that old gag, fix it in post? Mm -hmm. When the show's finished, they'll just get the sound people and, you know, the music people to fill in what's missing. Well, there's a lot of stuff you cannot fix in post. And I look at those... Extra, those other shows that we did and I can see all the flaws and um, mm-hmm. the first show had some flaws too but it was a joy in the, and in the end it won uh, it won a Gemini Award for children's programming and I think that if we had just done one show a year like Sparky did mm-hmm. it would have been good but um, these uh, production companies want to do 26 they want to do a series and once you do a series I mean, it's terribly hard to keep your quality up because it's too much and too fast. And yeah. you're, you know, you're still writing a script when they're trying to animate it. And they'll send it to Taiwan or, you know, they'll send it to Peru. I don't know where they send it, but it, it's out of your hands. And if somebody animates a scene and it's totally wrong, it's cut into the show and it's wrong and you don't have time to change it. And it's awful. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. You mentioned, um, you know, hearing the music loop back on on the special. So I want to actually get into the, the concept of music for a second uh, as an abstract. When you were, you know, first working on the strips and you were, you know, drawing and you were coming up with the stories, did you what 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 was on in your background? Like when you were at your drafting table and you're and you're drawing, are you, is there is there TV on? Is there radio on? Are you listening to music? Like what what was giving you the vibe? to kind of, you know, again, keep locked in and, you know, and what was the soundtrack of, of your work life? Uh, no, no sound at all when I was, when I was writing. Mm-hmm. It had to be absolutely quiet. Okay. Birds maybe outside. <laughs> but um, I used to listen to the CBC, which is, uh, you know, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and many, many artists do. I know that uh, Bob Bateman, Robert Bateman, who's the wildlife painter, he listens to this. So many artists listen to the CBC because it makes you feel as though you're part of a group. You know, mm-hmm. they have these talk shows and discussions and news and, and, and stuff. And if the CBC was uh, running something I didn't want to listen to, then I had a stack of CDs, and I had all my favorite CDs, and I would listen to them. Okay. Now, when when you eventually decide to end the strip, what was that relationship with your strip like at that point? Like, was it something that you kind of knew when you know when abouts you might end it, or like because that's a, a big decision to end something like that that's obviously taken up a huge aspect of your life. Um, was that a difficult decision to be like this is going to be the moment, or did you had you feel felt it coming for a little while? 
uh, with my last seven-year contract, I knew at the end of that contract I would end the strip. Okay. I knew that I, it really had, it was a story that was going to have to wind up because it wasn't something that I could keep on going forever, mostly because everybody grew up. Mm. All of my funny characters were gone, you know, the dog died and, you know, the second dog wasn't as funny and all <laughs> the kids grew up and the Michael and Elizabeth, when, you know, there were children born to them, uh, I had to change their looks so that they didn't look like April and, and uh, Elizabeth when they were, I, I, I had to change the, the looks. And once you change the looks to the point where it's a totally different character, it's not, it's not as goofy and, and mm. it's not as much fun. I mean, once you add lips to a character, you can't open that mouth like a drawer. It, it has an, a finite space, right? <laughs> and so it became too realistic. The backgrounds became too realistic. The characters became too realistic. You know, I was drawing every leaf on the tree and I was, you know, looking at, at uh, clothing magazines to make sure that the clothing were on trend and all that kind of silly stuff. And it became too exacting and there was too much research done. I was having Elizabeth dating a helicopter pilot. So I went to the helicopter school and I took photographs of inside and outside of the helicopters and asked all kinds of questions about the program. And I mean, I was doing research that was crazy and I thought, this is not fun anymore. It's turning into a really serious sitcom and I just, I just can't sustain it. And I had to say, it's, there, you know, there has to be a time when you end something. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to be good forever. And it was good, but it wasn't going to be good forever. And I think I did the right thing. And during that last seven years, I was able to wrap up the story quite well. I was able to tie up all kinds of loose ends mm -hmm. and, and end it. When, when you were coming to that point, so I guess I have two questions. Uh, first was, um, did you ever, obviously Sparky was a, a big influence and in, in part of your life. So one question is, um, when he was going to end Peanuts, um, did you ever talk to him about what had led to his decision to do that? And then the, the next question that, that we'll dovetail into is, when you were preparing to end yours, did you ever think about what Sparky would have thought or what advice he would have given you to end it? We didn't talk, we didn't take each other's advice. We're awful people about taking advice. You know, this is mine. I'm going to do it my way, right? <laughs> and I remember talking to him. Once he started to get ill, we talked about ending the strip and, and writing a story that would end it. And he felt he felt that that would jinx everything. He thought if I write a story that ends the strip, then I'm going to die right now you know I, and he didn't want to do that he didn't want to have uh, Charlie Brown kick the football or, or have anything happen that would sort of wrap it up mm -hmm. and um, but he thought he might do it someday but he put it off and put it off and uh, he, I don't think he thought he would ever die. He, he certainly was very upset about it when he was in the hospital. He kept saying, this isn't fair. I'm not ready. <laughs> you know, I, I really, you know, I, I want to keep going. I, I've been doing the greatest work I've ever done, and I love what I do, and I, I, I'm not ready for this. It's not fair. Actually, uh, to jump on the, the, the Sparky kind of remembrances for a second, I had an interview last year with uh, cartoonist Judd Winnick, um, who he spoke very highly of you, and I guess you helped introduce him to Sparky. Um, and he said that he, he couldn't believe he was at the table with him, and he couldn't even believe that he was supposed to call him Sparky. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. Well, Sparky was, was very generous that way. He was very approachable. And again, you know, unless you were sort of threatening his position on the, <laughs> on the, the, head, the head table, <laughs> you know, he, uh, he was quite happy to, uh, to be part of the crew. Did you find yourself, I mean, in terms of, you know, where you were, um, did you find yourself competing with anyone or feeling that anyone was like a, a direct competitor of some kind? I mean, you're all kind of competing for, as you said, kind of space on, on the newspaper page. But did you ever feel that sense of competitiveness? And how did that drive you if it did? I think you always have a sense of competitiveness, especially with yourself. You want to be better today than you were yesterday. But I think the one person that made me pop my eyeballs and, and, and sharpen my pencils was Bill Watterson. I mean, Calvin and Hobbes was wonderful, beautifully drawn, beautifully written. It was an exceptionally good uh, strip. And um, I, I just thought, boy, there, there's a new bar right there. And so if, if I competed with anybody... Um, it was more. It's more of an intellectual competition than anything. You you admire somebody's work and you say, "Boy, if I'm going to stay in this job, I better I better keep on pushing myself hard." Right. Mm-hmm. But the competition really is between uh, syndicates and their sales staff because their sales staff again has to go into a paper and say, "Listen, for better for worse is better than Blondie. Get rid of Blondie." Or Blondie would say, "For better for worse is garbage." You know. <laughs> Blondie has been around for ages. Take Blondie. So for better, for worse, would bump Blondie. Blondie would bump for better, for worse. And yet I could be friends with uh, with Dean and Charlotte Young, go have dinner with them and have a lot of laughs as our syndicates beat each other up over who got that little space in the paper. Would you say, like, of the newspaper strips that you remember kind of reading when you were younger, is, is would you point to any as being a specific kind of inspiration point or a thing where you're like, you learned something from that specific strip that you actively wanted to emulate on your own? I mean, obviously you're telling your own stories, but was there ever, which strip would you say was the kind of most impactful on the type of strip that you ended up wanting to do? I think this is probably super politically incorrect, but the strip that most affected me was called Henry, and I absolutely hated it. I thought it was terribly drawn, terribly written, and I thought, man, if you can get a comic strip into the newspaper, so can I. And I was about eight years old. (laughs) 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 And, uh, you know, my brother was a professional trumpet player. And I remember saying to him, "So, Al, if you know, where are you on the on the scale of of good? You know?" And he said, "Lynn, if you want to be good, go where people are bad, right?" <laughs> so, I mean, it's competition everywhere when you're an artist, whether you're a musician or a dancer or you know whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, seeing something really bad <laughs> made me feel so. Yeah, maybe I could I could get there. Over the years, I mean, obviously, there's been for better or for worse merchandise. Was there a specific? Like piece of merchandise that you that was your favorite that you were like, well, now I've made it. <laughs> that happened. You know, we have almost no merchandise to be honest. Very, very little. Mostly, what we have are the books 
because my characters grew and changed all the time, it was very hard to license them. You know, you can license Snoopy and Charlie Brown and all these characters that don't change, but something that changes really is difficult to to license. And so the one character that we actually had produced ourselves was Farley the dog. Mm. And we had him made in China by a, a, a great company, and, a, and we had a wonderful guy who was, you know, working with us uh, on this. But we did it because there's a group of... Uh, of um, veterinarians in Ontario and they have a foundation called the Farley Foundation. Mm -hmm. They asked if they could have the dog's name and the dog's image as a mascot or as a, you know, for their foundation. And we heard about what they were doing and what they did was they raised money so that people who could not afford to have their pets taken care of could have veterinary care that was covered. So, you know, there's all senior citizens or, you know, there are all kinds of situations where your pet is the most important thing in your life. And, you know, if your pet is sick and you can't look after your pet, you might have to leave the pet in pain or the pet has to be put down and that's devastating and these veterinarians are they don't want they don't want to you know euthanize your pet they want to keep your pet going but some of these operations are six hundred dollars or a thousand or you know thousands of dollars sometimes mm-hmm. and so um the farley foundation is only in ontario which i think is too bad because it's such a good group and they've been doing this for many years and farley has been their mascot and uh, we had the plush farley plush made so that they could sell him and the money would go to the farley foundation and that's the nice product we've ever had and we only have about 20 Farleys left. Oh, wow. So my last que- one of my last questions before I let you get back to your evening after spending so much time with us, and I'm very appreciative of that, is uh, when you were obviously you know, developing the strip, and as you said, uh, your characters were kind of three years behind your own, your own kids, um, what, was, what did your family think of being you know, somewhat represented in these strips that you know, they were inspired on your own life? Did, were they happy about it? Did they like seeing things that had happened to them kind of represented in the strips? Were they mortified by it? Uh, did they eventually get, become more okay with it? Like, how did they feel about being, having their lives in some way interpreted as part of your work? Well, to be honest, when they were little, they didn't read it at all. And, uh, you know, and uh, now and then when their friends would say, like Michael, for example, my son Aaron was Michael. And, uh, you know, now and then there would be somebody saying, you know, do you really have a girlfriend called Martha? And he would get, come home and get angry and say, you know, <laughs> why do you have to do this? Why do you have to, you know, have us in the strip? But for the most part, they really didn't pay much attention to it all. It was mostly... Mostly they were affected by my traveling, but they were also affected by the fact that I knew all these really cool people. Mm. I mean, we went to visit the Schultzes a number of times and saw the ice show, and we would go down to Disney World or Disneyland, and we would be able to go through the back alleys and behind the shows and see how things were done and put together and ride that train. And, you know, we, we had all kinds of privileges that other people don't have, you know, flying in Garfield's airplane and, you know. <laughs> You know, it was, they had all kinds of wonderful adventures. I got to know Phyllis Diller quite well. And, you know, for my daughter to say, yes, well, you know, I've met Phyllis Diller. And, you know, that was a privilege. The kids really had a wonderful time with that. And I tried so hard not to hurt them or, or, or expose them or say anything that was true and and that they would be embarrassed by you know I worked really hard and that's where April came in April was a wonderful foil because she didn't exist 
It's now, what's happening now is that my daughter, who's in her 40s, has two kids, and she's saying, now I understand. (laughs) And she's reading it with a whole new point of view. You know, it's completely, from a mother's point of view now, uh, and and then your, your son is reading it at the age of eight, right? And he's seeing it differently from now, from when he will, when he's a parent himself. Oh, for sure. I even just watch it, reading it with him now, because again, now I'm a parent myself, and so I can see the humor and things I may not have seen before. And I'm like, oh my god, that's that's totally true. Like, and and sometimes I'll point at him like, exact. That's exactly what you're like, and he's like laughing at the characters. I'm like, I guess so, Dad. <laughs> well, it was you know, it was realistic, which was what I really wanted to do in all directions, like. Everything from the sad stuff to goofy stuff to relationships. And I wanted to be believable. And it was all from the woman's point of view. And I guess I was hired because, um, it, it, you know, like the dad would come home from work in a lot of these other strips. And he saw a very idealized family. The kids were clean and dressed and dinner was on the table. Whereas from the mom's point of view, she had to clean and dress those kids and peel those spuds, right? So... Uh, <laughs> You know, it, <laughs> so it fit in quite nicely, and uh, and it was a, a a career of a lifetime. I I will never stop feeling lucky that I was able to do that. What is it? What is it like now having your daughter kind of working with you? Because obviously, you know, there's still intellectual property. You're still creating, you know, proper products, etc. What is it like to have her working with you? Oh, it's wonderful because she's you know grown up with the strip. I, a lot of uh, comic artists, their their children somehow or other you know are drawn into the business uh, just because they they grew up with it. So she's uh, you know she's wonderful. She's also a business mind. I mean, a lot of artists just are completely lost when it comes to marketing and business and contracts and you know the serious stuff when it, you know around the production of a, of a feature like this. So she's great. And what she's doing now, too, is uh, she's working with uh, my colorist, and they're making all kinds of changes to the strip as it runs again. And so they're putting helmets on the skiers and seatbelts <laughs> on the people in cars and erasing cigarettes, you know, <laughs> things like that. You don't see that anymore. But, uh, you know, so it's great to have that. Yeah, and we get along great. I'm very lucky. A lot of folks don't get along with their kids, but I get along with mine. That's fantastic. Well, again, Lynn, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. I really appreciate it. It's been great kind of understanding more about your process and what kind of went into those books. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And thanks so much for the interview. This was a real, a real pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much.